Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning, my name is Josh Bertram. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Grace Crossing Church. It's great to have you here with us this morning. How many of you have taken a test that you were not prepared for ever in your life? Give me a thumbs up. Yes, okay. Uh, You are among good company then. Uh, When I was in seminary, which is basically graduate school for theological education, I uh, went to a place called Gordon-Conwell, and I took all these classes there, and they had one particular type of class they offered was called Simlink. And basically, you would receive the materials for this class, and it was uh, online education, but you'd receive the materials where you could put it in and listen to, download the lectures, stuff like that. And I decided this was a great idea. I didn't have to go to class. I didn't have to be there every week. I didn't have time for that stuff. And I needed to take this course um, so I could make sure that I, you know, got through the uh, education in the right way. And it was a good idea. The problem was I'm a procrastinator. Do we have any other procrastinators in here? And it's like, you know, you get that, you, you're like, it's crazy because you deceive yourself, don't you? You're like, ah, I got time, you know? And then you're like a week away and you're like, wait, I don't have any time to do this. All my time's gone, which really you just wasted it. And I understand I have done that. And I did that in this course. Now, if I had known what I know now before I had taken this course, I would have done things differently. First thing I wish I had known before I had taken this course is that um, this course, which was on Old Testament survey, sounds like so easy, doesn't it? Um, that it was the most difficult course at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Number one, you had to read through the entire Old Testament. Doing that in a week is not easy. All right. Um, number two, you had to you had one grade counted for this course. One. And that grade was the final exam. And they gave you a practice test that was 250 or 300 questions. And it had questions like this. Please identify the seven elements of apocalyptic literature, giving references in all the different areas that it appears in the Bible and summarize in a sentence how this element relates to the others and the significance it has for interpreting apocalyptic literature. And that was the short answer question. (laughs) And as I'm beginning to work through these things, I'm starting to get this impending sense of doom ahead of me. (laughs) I have a test that I have to take and I'm going to fail it. And you had to turn in this set of questions, and it didn't count for your grade. It just counted against you if you didn't do it. So my wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, helped me and also helped me through my depression at that time. And I was was stressed out of my mind, and I literally thought I was going to fail this test. And so I walk in, and here's the final exam. I go into the library, I sit down, there's a gentleman next to me, and he's taking it, what I think is the same exam, and he's going through it, and then uh, he just kind of goes, shaking his head, huffing and puffing, I'm like, man, what's going on? He takes the exam and goes and turns in, and and he said, "I, I can't finish this. He had turned it in undone because it was too difficult. 
And I'm sweating bullets at this point. I'm going to fail this test. And I got through it. And I left. And I literally just, I probably called Ash and said, I just failed that test. I'm going to get the first F that I think I've ever gotten in my life. I failed that test. I mean, I felt horrible about it. Took me forever. It was crazy. The questions they're asking, like, who is this person? They're asking me about, you know, all this stuff in the Old Testament. So a couple weeks later, get the email. Your, your results are in. And I'm like, I'm done, man. I'm paying for this, and it's over. And I open up the email, and I got an A on the test. An A. And no, no. There's one reason I got an A, and one only. It was because I did the practice exam. I took time. And even though it was last minute, I don't recommend my study habits. Please don't do that. I worked through the process, practiced the test, and it prepared me for this final exam that I had. And as I was thinking back on this experience in my life, it kind of occurred to me you know, that we practice in order to prepare for something. And you practice an instrument to prepare for your concert. You practice a sport to prepare for the game. And you can always tell the people who practice and the people who haven't. And I think there's a spiritual lesson there. And I believe it because I've seen it in my life and I've seen it and the lives of those around me, people I respect, and I've seen it work both positively and negatively in people's lives. But practice makes what? Perfect. Well, yes, but not really. See, practice doesn't actually make you perfect. It makes you prepared. And it makes you prepared for the test. And when you practice, we're never going to get perfection in our faith as we practice certain things. It prepares us for tests. And we're in a series called Overwhelmed. And in this series, we're in week two. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the Sermon on the Mount. We're taking a look at it. It's one of the most uh, well-written, greatest works of literature. Uh, has some of the highest ethical ideals ever written in the history of the world. It's based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And as we look through it during our time together, we're going to try to discover what Jesus is actually saying to us and what we need to do about it. And last week, I tried to frame it the first week and then into this week, I'm trying to set the framework for this series on Overwhelmed. And here's the basic idea behind it. When people interacted with Jesus, they had a response to it. And last week, we talked about the response, and we looked at the response of the crowds to help us understand what our response should look like. In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, that's the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, Jesus had something distinctively different from everyone else. He had authority. 
He had authority in what he taught. He had authority in the way he taught it. And he had authority in the mind-bending power that he displayed in his supernatural signs and miracles that were all throughout his ministry, attested in multiple places. We know that these things happened. Jesus had authority and he validated all of his claims by his miracles and by raising from the dead. So we see that Jesus had ultimate authority. And when Jesus has authority, it means as we approach his teachings, they are not suggestions, but they are commands. They are things that we are to take and bring into our life. And so we saw that the proper response to Jesus' teaching is amazement, a strong emotional reaction. And there's a continuum of emotions that we have when we take seriously what Jesus says. And we need to understand and process those. And we have his authority and we react to them. But at the second hand, our obligation, what it is on us to do is to choose, are we going to obey? And we should choose to obey. Matthew 8, 1 says that large crowds followed Jesus, that they followed him. That word follow implies obedience. It implies taking on the life and teachings and lifestyle of the person that you are following in that culture. And so today, to us, Jesus is saying the same thing. If you want to be his disciple, you must follow him. You must obey him. You must take his values, his principles, and bring them into your life. We must follow Jesus. Now, Jesus was a masterful teacher. And we know this. When you start to look through the different teachings he has, um, they are compelling. He uses metaphors. He uses parables. He uses analogies. He uses figurative speech to try to illustrate what he's saying. He uses direct commands. He asks questions. He was a masterful teacher. And if you look at what Jesus was teaching, it's unbelievable the stuff he says. He has some pretty hard-hitting things. And as he moves through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to cover that stuff as we move through the next few weeks. But we have to frame ourselves by understanding how did Jesus end his sermon. See, in the end of the sermon is where the most important things come. It is where the exhortation, the, the encouragement, the urging to make a decision, the call to action typically is. And for Jesus, it was no different. And if you were to go to Matthew 7 and begin to read through it, here's what you'd see. You'd see Jesus gave a pretty compelling end to a sermon. The first thing he tells us is that you need to choose the narrow gate. He takes a narrow gate and a wide gate and he compares them and he says the narrow gate is just so restrictive that many people don't go there. Few people actually choose it. The broad gate is so nice and comfortable and broad. Most people just go on that. But Jesus defines the narrow gate and the narrow gate leads to life. The second thing he would say is he says that you need to watch out for false prophets. Who are false prophets? Those are people who come and they say things, they look good, they try to say they're from God saying the right stuff, but their actions don't accompany their words. You can tell a good prophet, a good speaker, a good representative of God from a bad one by one thing, you look at their fruit. See, bad trees don't produce rotten fruit. I mean, good trees don't produce rotten fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. And so what is fruit? Fruit is the outward manifestation, the outward evidence of what's happening inside because we can only fake it for so long, can't we? Eventually, things are gonna start coming out. 
And he says, look, look for the people who have bad fruit. Well, what is bad fruit? Well, he answers that for us. He says that there's going to be a day when he stands in judgment over all people. And on that day, he's going to determine by his own criteria that he has set who has, can enter into the kingdom of heaven the place we all want to be, the place that fulfills every dream we have, every desire we could ever imagine will be fulfilled there, the place with no tears, the place with great freedom, the, great with pa- the place with great power. It is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we all want, even if we don't know it. And Jesus says, you need to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in order to do that, here's a criteria. The people who do the will of my father enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he says in Matthew seven twenty one. He says, people are going to say to me, and not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is heaven. Of course, that gets us the question of what is the will of the Father, and here's where things get interesting. Jesus moves from this idea and talking about that day when he will make his criteria, and he says, therefore, and he begins to tell us a story of two builders. Both builders have the same material. Both builders know how to build something and they're building a house. One builder is a wise builder. Jesus calls him wise. The reason Jesus calls him wise is because this builder builds his house on rock. See, if you, were, if you and I were in Palestine 2,000 years ago and we were looking to build a house, the first thing that we would do is look for a solid foundation. We would look for a place that we could build upon a rock. And the reason we would do that is because when the storms come, and the storms always come, when the storms come, the houses that were built on rock, the foundation will keep the structural integrity of the building together and the storm will not destroy the house. He compares this wise builder to a foolish builder. The foolish builder goes against all common sense, goes against what he understood, the common practices of the time of how to build well. He goes against wisdom and he acts in a foolish way. It's not that he's dumb. It's not that he's stupid. It's not that he doesn't know what to do. It's that he doesn't do it. He actually builds his house on sand. And when you build your house on sand, when the storms come and they always come, it starts to mess with things. The sand isn't solid, it's loose dirt and it begins to move back and forth and it's moving in one direction and another direction and the structural integrity of the house cannot withstand the movement under it because the foundation is the most important part of any structure. And he compares the wise and foolish builder. And then when it comes down to it, both the wise and foolish builder, almost everything about them is the same except for one difference. The wise builder, he puts into practice what he knows to be true. He does it. The foolish builder, he ignores what he knows. The difference is in the application of the same knowledge. And so here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. 24 through 27 says, everyone, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain comes, the wind blows and beats against the house. The streams rise and it what? It fell with a great crash. 
When you look at it again, you try to highlight the similarities between the two different uh, builders. Here's what you see. We see in bold, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Now here's a similarity and the dissimilarity that's in this story that Jesus is telling. But then, when you look down, everyone who hears these words and does not put them into practice. When you begin to look at this, they, everyone who hears these words, everyone who hears these words. So there is the same knowledge, same material, same construction material there for both sets of people. And the storm is the same. Rain comes, wind blows, streams rise, The house has to face the same exact event, the same exact disaster. The difference is in two things. The wise builder uses the knowledge he has and he applies the construction material and knowledge he has with wisdom. The foolish builder ignores the knowledge that he has available to him and or her and he does not construct the house according to what he should be doing. And when we look at this, Jesus is telling us an analogy. And there are results to this analogy. The house built by the wise builder, it crashes. I mean, it, it, it sustains all of the storms that come. The house built by the foolish, it does not. And it crashes presumably with the foolish man inside. He wouldn't be walking around in a storm. So it comes down and it crashes. And the difference is in the application. The difference is in the taking of that knowledge available to them and putting it into practice. Now, Jesus is giving us an analogy here. And the beautiful thing about an analogy is that it instructs us through comparison. And so when we look at each one of these elements of what's happening in this story, we can take this, be sure that those elements relate to something happening in our lives related to what Jesus is saying and teaching. For instance, we have a house, both, of a, both houses, they're in both of the different stories, and a house would represent our lives. It would represent our faith. It would represent the things that we have done to build this house. The rains and the winds and the streams, those things represent the inevitable and uncontrollable storms of life. The things that happen that we cannot control, not necessarily the results of our sin, that is dealt with elsewhere, but these are things that are beyond our control, beyond our reach. They happen to us, and we have to be prepared for them. When you look at that word, whoever hears these words of mine, what you see there is that this actually has a strong implication, a strong idea connected to it of obedience. We all know there's a difference between hearing and listening, don't we? Hearing is hearing audible sounds. Listening is paying attention, understanding. And listening carries with it the idea that you are going to respond in a positive way to what you are understanding. If you're talking, if I'm talking to my son Malachi and he's hearing everything I'm saying, but he's not necessarily listening to me. And so both of the people in this parable. Both of the people in this analogy, they hear the words of Jesus. They, may, they are affected by the words of Jesus. They are inspired by the words of Jesus. They see them and they, they are motivated. There's something inside that's driving them to change. But then when the rubber meets the road, at some point, they f- either practice or fail to put into practice what Jesus is saying. And it's in that central point that all 
of the importance lies. Everything is built on that. See, it's not charisma, and it's not even resources. It's not even knowledge of the Bible or having all the right friends in all the right places. It's none of that. When it comes down to it, the very structural integrity of our lives and in our faith is based on one thing. Have we put into practice the words of Jesus Christ in our life or have we ignored them? Because in the end, that is the criteria. That is the understanding of what the will of the Father is putting into practice the words of Jesus. And see, something happens when we put into practice the words of Jesus. When we put into practice the words of Jesus, it prepares us for something. What does it prepare us for? It prepares us for the inevitable and uncontrollable storms of life. And those who put, their practice, put Jesus' words into practice they're able to handle every storm that comes their way. They are prepared for the test. And those who do not put the words of Jesus into practice, they're not able to handle the storms. And they're not prepared for what happens. And so when we want to understand what this is saying, we need to do three things. We need to understand what it means to put Jesus' words into practice. We, we need to understand what happens. We need to understand what happens when we don't put them into practice, and we need to understand how to put them into practice. And when you think about what it means to actually put Jesus' words into practice and what happens, a few things start coming to mind. Here's what I think of. When you put the words of Jesus and to practice, you are literally laying a foundation that can withstand all of the tests of life. Matthew 7, 24. Again, it's worthy to repeat. Everyone who puts these words of mine into practice, they're like a wise man who built his house on a rock. See, everything came down to that foundation. In Palestine... Storms came out of nowhere. And these storms would create these torrential rains that would create floods. We, are rec we recognize that in Ohio, don't we? The storms here, oh my word. And they come in and they bring these flood waters. And so that was an extremely dangerous thing to happen. But the foundation was everything. The foundation protected that house, the structural integrity of that house from the onslaught of the storm. And in the same way, when we put the words of Jesus into practice, we are protecting and establishing and building the very structural integrity of our faith. And here's why. When you put someone's word into practice, it implies that that you trust them. And when you trust someone, it implies that you know them. And when you know someone, there is a deep connection between you and them. And when we know Jesus, the one who is God, the one who has all authority over everything in this world, then that putting his words into practice, they offer us a protection, a foundation that can withstand all of the onslaughts that life will bring towards us. They can weather the storm. 
When we set that foundation, we have a foundation that can withstand all of the things that life throws at us. And see, when we have this foundation, it actually transforms the storms of life. The storms of life that come at us, they are moved from being destructive to instructive. Because we have a foundation that will not give way. And these storms, they instruct us in two ways. They expose weaknesses and they show our strengths. When the inevitable and uncontrollable storms of life come, when we have the correct foundation built upon a relationship with Christ of trust and of faith and actually putting into practice his words, that, that will help these storms turn from a trial to a test. And that test will reveal where we need to work and grow and it will also at the very same time show where we've already grown. And it will glorify God in it. You know, you might not struggle with anger. And maybe you thought, yourself of, thought of yourself as a pretty even keel person until you had kids. You know, you're super patient and then it's 3 a.m. and the babe's crying again and you can't get any sleep and you're a zombie already. Or, you know, when they're older, they're, no, 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 no. Everything is no, okay, right? Oh, yes, yes, you have to say yes, okay? Test your patience. You start realizing maybe you're not as patient and, and as peace-loving as you once thought. And then they become teenagers and you get in some serious fights. And you say some things that you wish you hadn't said. And you have some regrets because instead of building up or being patient in a moment, you succumb to the anger, to the feeling of disrespect, and you piled it on your kid. You crushed their spirit because your words have weight. And you're struggling through this. And as you're thinking about it and what Jesus would say, maybe you come across Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You've heard it said that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say to you that even if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And you realize that, look, my anger isn't acceptable. I want to make excuses for it. I want to say everyone else does it. I want to say it's their fault. They just push my buttons. But then you face the words of Jesus to say, no, when you call people idiots, when you have this rage in your heart, man, you might, you've already killed them in your mind. You're so angry at them that you can't even think straight. It isn't appropriate. The anger in this situation isn't right. And so you begin to pray and ask God and, and you begin to start bringing people into your life and you confess to your son or daughter and you say, look, I'm sorry that I've been so angry. I'm sorry I said the things I did. I shouldn't have said it. I was wrong and I'm going to work on this. And as you move through the months, you realize the next time your son comes in screaming at you because you didn't let him hang with his friends 
Instead of reacting with an idiot and uh, breaking him down and pushing him down, you take a deep breath. You ask God to come in in the middle of this situation. You say, you know, son, I understand why you're angry. But I'm sorry, I can't let you go this time. And he storms off, but you have changed. And yeah, you have a long way to go. You'll mess up again. But the test has revealed something. It's revealed God's work. And it's revealed where you need to grow. See, when we put into practice the words of Jesus, tests, storms become tests and tests reveal what God's doing. They cannot destroy you anymore. They become constructive. They build you. But you know, some tests are much harder than an argument with your teenage son or daughter, aren't they? Some tests are so enormously destructive in their power that it feels like you can hardly breathe. Maybe you have lost your husband and you're looking into retirement and you're feeling alone. You couldn't believe that this happened. It came out of nowhere. And now you are crushed by the reality of what's happening. And you read in the gospels and you see, you see in, in Matthew 5 and, and 6, you see what Jesus says. And you see that he says, look, blessed are the more and blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And you look at this and Jesus' words are supposed to be to you that you will be comforted, that in your mourning you're blessed and you just don't feel that right now. Maybe you lost your job. You got called in and they said you didn't cut it. They're doing downsizes and you just didn't make the cut. And all the things that you have thought about in life, the dreams that you had are now falling all around you and you don't know what to do. And you read in the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 25, I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about what you'll eat or drink or what you will wear or your body. And you're sitting there and here's Jesus' words, the truth of what he's trying to tell you. And here's your reality. And you have a tension that you have to face that you aren't able to resolve right now. It is so crushing what is happening. Or maybe there is an identity crisis in your heart that you've always dealt with because your dad simply didn't think you were enough. You couldn't please him. You couldn't get his affection. You couldn't make things right. He was always manipulative, never giving you what you need. And you're constantly striving after him and you hate yourself for doing it. But at the same time, the one thing you want is his approval and you just can't get it. And you look in Matthew 6 and Jesus says, this is how you pray, our father in heaven. And how can you view God as a father? Because if your dad has any indication, then he's a pretty bad God. But here's Jesus' words. He's telling us his truth. And in the midst of that, there are things that are so crushing. There are storms that are so devastating that we feel like we can't make it. And in those situations, 
When you have put into practice the words of Jesus, here's what happens. There may be some siding that's been ripped off. Maybe the roof's gone. Maybe this thing has been so beaten up and the windows are shattered and there's mess and chaos all over the place, but the foundation stands. And the reason the foundation stands is because when Jesus came to this world, he came to face our greatest enemy and he came to face the full force of hell so that we could survive anything that comes our way. And Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly and he did everything that he was supposed to do and he willingly gave his life and he faced a full onslaught that Satan had. You know, the scriptures tell us that the kingdoms of this world have been given to Satan. And there's a mystery in that, guys, and I don't have time to talk about it all today, but you need to understand and I need to understand, I really feel that Satan is extremely powerful The spiritual world against us is very hard to understand. It's very confusing sometimes, but we know that they are going to throw everything that he has. He's going to throw everything to take us down because this is about breaking the foundation because the foundation is our faith, our trust, our relationship with Christ, where it moves into an activity of putting his words into practice. And Jesus was able to face the entire full force, all the enemy had. He marshaled together to throw against Jesus and he put him on a cross and he put him in the grave and he realized three days later that he didn't do any of it, that God did it and God was victorious and every storm that we ever face will not destroy us. It turns from a storm that is raging into a place where we are winning. God has won this battle. The full force of hell could not take Jesus down. And he is the foundation that we build our life on. Putting his words into practice. And when we put his words into practice, it's amazing what happens. So when we put his words into practice, we begin to experience their truth and their power. There are only some, there are some things that you can only learn through experience. How many, you know that? We know that. See, I, I, I had a time when I thought, man, I'm going to be a mechanic. Not really. But I said, I'm going to save some money. So what I did is I uh, ended up, you know, I tried to get my car up on, uh, you know, um, I, can't, I can't even think of what they are. That's how good of a mechanic I am, all right? Get your car up so you can work on it, all right? And I would, you know, read through the manual and I'd watch all the YouTube videos. And inevitably, I'd get to the place where, wait, what is this part? Or... Man, I can't get my tire back on. What happened? And I'm sitting there, honey, I got really bad news. I got to figure this out. I'm not going to be home for dinner. And I'm really sorry I was stupid again, okay? Now, there are some things you only learn through experience. When you do them, it doesn't matter how much you read the manual. It doesn't matter how much you try to figure it out. Only when you go and you're in that, you're in that testing of the real world that you can see, hey, here's how you do this. That manual says this, but here's how it looks in real life. And when we put into practice the words of Jesus, he will prove faithful every single time. 
His words will not fail. And we will only know that when we've experienced it. And as we put into practice the words of Jesus, they will become true again and again and again. And we will trust more and more and more. And what happens when we do that is we actually enter into a deeper and more significant and more intimate relationship with God. When you think about it, whenever someone asks you to do something, it creates tension, doesn't it? Because they're kind of asking you to do what they want. They're kind of taking their will and making it, putting it on you. And we kind of, we, we, ah, we push back against that. And understandably so. When we think about it in the context of a father to a child, and this child is living life, and the father or the mother, they're trying to help this child find the way that they need to go, and they're giving them instructions, and they're asking for obedience. And every time they ask for obedience, and that child willingly does not do what they say, it creates tension. It's like if you go to your daughter, and I'm going to borrow an illustration from one of my favorite preachers, Francis Chant, and you say, go clean your room, and she comes back and says, says, mom, mom, or dad, dad, guess what? I memorized exactly what you said. You said, go clean your room. Or say, man, I looked it up in the original Latin. Man, it's so cool to figure out what's going on there. And they talk to you and they give you this whole plan. Well, first I'm going to do my bed and then I'm going to pick up my shoes and then I'm going to do all the things that I need to do. And man, they understand it. They comprehend it. They get every single part of it. And you walk into the room and it's a total chaotic mess. They've missed the whole point. They've missed the whole point. See, when we obey and we walk in obedience and we put into practice, we actually do, we make plans, yes, but we do the words of Jesus in our life. Something amazing happens. We grow into deeper relationship with him because the obedience removes the tension. It resolves all the tension that is there. And when that tension is taken, intimacy, connection, meaningful time, replaces it. If we want to be closer to Christ, if we want to be closer to God, if we want to feel his presence with us, obedience is not optional, it is essential because disobedience creates tension. And that tension's resolved with obedience. We will enter into a deeper relationship with Christ and it's the way in every relationship. Jesus is no different. When we put his words into practice, we will, f- we will have a foundation that will withstand every test. A foundation that will never be destroyed. And we will know God more and we will experience his truth more than we ever have. But if we hear his words and we do not put them into practice, we will forfeit all of the benefits of everything I just talked about. If we go to Jesus and we do not put his words into practice, then we literally will stumble over his words. And Matthew 7, 27, this is talking about the foolish builder and it says that the rain came down The streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. Now that word beat against the house, that's actually a very interesting word because that 
word literally translates to stumbling. The idea of tripping over a rock or an obstacle. And it's actually taken and actually connected to Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus and his words become a stumbling obstacle, something that causes people to fall. And if we're not careful, the words of Jesus will not build us up. They will not transform us, but they will actually become a stumbling block for us because we don't actually believe them. And because they require belief, there's no other option. They're too radical. They're too, they're too intense. They're too authoritative in our life for them to be options or us not to believe them. And we will stumble over that. And what happens is things may be going great. And then all of a sudden there's a diagnosis of cancer and you hate God and you don't want to talk to him and you stop getting in community. You isolate yourself and you don't want to talk to anybody. And I can't even imagine what it feels like to have that kind of of pain on yourself, but Jesus knows. He knows what's going on. And in those moments, those who've built their life, they've built their whole entire faith, the structural integrity of their faith is based upon putting into practice the words of Jesus, trusting him and loving him. Those people in those moments, there is a difference and you can see it. If you want to know if someone has put into the word and put Jesus' words into practice, find them in an emergency room. Find them in a place where there's no control. Find them in a place where they can't say a word and things go differently. Find them in a place when life is against them is what it seems. Those who put Jesus' words into practice, they know they serve a God who already sees this, understands it, and it will not take them down. It will not destroy them. Even death can't beat them because they're just gonna end up with Jesus. And they know it. There's hope. There's not hopelessness. There's peace when everything is falling down around. But on the other side, when we have not put the words into Jesus, there is overwhelming fear, crushing anger. There's the kind of, the kind of oppressiveness and you can sense it in the room. If you do not put the words of Jesus into practice, you will not have the foundation. You're building a foundation on sand. And when the storms come, and they will come, it will compromise everything. Everything. See, practice, it doesn't make perfect, it makes you prepared, and it prepares you for what's to come. And the question that we have to answer is how do we do this? How do we actually take what Jesus is saying and how do we put it into our life? I want to show you how to do that. I just want to very briefly show you how to take what Jesus is saying and by extension, everything in those 66 books of the Bible. Anything that God's bringing to you in that moment throughout life, how to take it and bring it into your life. I want to use a sample passage. It's an easy one, sort of. Not easy to do, easy to understand. Matthew 7, 12. It's the golden rule. 
We all probably have heard it and everything do to others as you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and prophets. So there's my scripture. How do I take this and how do I move this into my life? Now, we have a problem because as long as it's just up there, it's information. It's just words on a page. And we need to move this thing from information to transformation. See, God didn't give us his word to give us knowledge. He didn't give us his word. Jesus didn't give us his teachings to make us feel good or smarter. He gave us his teachings to reveal to us the way that we should be going in life and to transform us through the power of his Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And they need to move from information to transformation and it doesn't happen by accident. There's something that has to happen there. There's a process that we go through. I've made a little graphic for us to understand, but we have to move from information to interpretation. That's bringing the meaning. That's bringing meaning to this thing. Like, what does it mean? And what does it mean for me? And once we get these questions answered, then we can start to do application. We can apply it to our lives. We can say, here's how it fits in. Here's, here's how it looks in the daily, the daily situations and circumstances of our life. And then application moves to transformation. And you don't have control over that. You know, my wife loves to garden. And so we get out there and we, I have to go and dig all these holes and make this uh, garden, you know, to make it look good. And she does a lot of work, of course, too. But we put them, right, the, the right amount apart, 12 inches, the right distance from each other. We make sure those in the shade are in the shade, those who can survive, and other ones uh, who are not in the shade, that they have all the sun that they need. We try to make sure their water, try to make sure the soil is right. We do all this stuff to try to make it happen, but we can do nothing absolutely nothing to make that plant grow. See, the growth, the powerful growth is internal to that plant. And the powerful growth in us is internal to the Holy Spirit's power within us. And when we do application, we are trying to make the garden. We are trying to do everything in our part and let God do his part. And he does the heavy lifting, guys. Every single movement in each of these things, the Holy Spirit has to come in and he has to guide us. And he will guide you and he will create the transformation in you. You don't have to do it, you just have to obey. And as you apply, you will be transformed. So when I look at Matthew seven twelve, here's what I think about. I look and I see so in everything. Okay, what does Jesus mean by everything? See, this is just information right now, so I need to move to bringing some meaning to this. What does he mean by everything? Well, let me see if the context tells me. Well, due to others. Okay, so this is about an interaction between me and someone else. What do I do? Well, it would have them do to them as you would have them do to you. Okay, so this is about an interaction between me, and I'm supposed to say what would I want them to do for me. But it's actually a little bit deeper than that because people are different and different things happen. They have different preferences and ideas and they come to the table with different things. So what I have to say is they say, okay, what would I want them to do for me? How would I want them to treat me in this interaction? How would I want them to treat me if I were them? 
If I were in their shoes with their experiences and their understanding, and then I have to say, okay, this sums up the law and prophets. All right, so there's a law here. There's prophets. So what does that mean? I look it up and I see, okay, this is talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is talking about all the minor, major prophets. All right, so what's the big idea here? What's the generalization? Well, God sent these people and he gave them his words. This is doing what God asked me to do. So if I have this principle in my life, then I can actually sum up. I can actually obey the law and the prophets, okay, by treating other people in the way that I would want to be treated if I were them in my interactions with them. And I just start asking questions because the one thing I'm trying to get at is what does God want me to do? What is the one thing? What's the central truth? What's the thing God is trying to say? Here's the timeless principle. Here's the thing that it doesn't matter if it happened in 1000 AD or 3000 BC or 2016. It's the truth. It needs to happen. We're looking for that. And so what we do is we look at this and we say, okay, law and prophets, then I'm going to have to check what I think because sometimes my desires are whacked out. I got to check what I think against the Bible. You know, my desire to cheat and steal and things like that, those aren't good. And so those are things God doesn't want me to do. So I have to let the scriptures inform me. I have to bring in other people. Hey, what do you think about this? Maybe a leader at youth group or, or a pastor or a mentor or someone who's ahead of you. What do you guys think about this? Here's what I think is happening. And so when you get a central truth in my interactions with people and all of my interactions with the people around me, I should treat them in a way that respects who they are, respects them, and it's a way that I would want to be treated if I were them. And so once you get that truth, and I wish I had made a graphic for it. I didn't, I'm sorry. But once you get that truth, you can just make a simple, like a spreadsheet or whatever. And this is just a suggestion, okay? A spreadsheet, all right? One column, several rows. And what you're doing in this top one is you're saying, here's a central truth. Here's a scripture. Here's a central truth. I need to treat others in my interactions the way I would want to be treated. I need to respect them for who they are and treat them. And then you start counting your roles. I'm a father for me. I'm a son. I'm an employee. I'm a husband. I am whatever. And when you look through those, God's going to start to bring to your mind different circumstances. You know, maybe when my mom takes away my cell phone and tries to invade my privacy, how would I, how would I uh, treat this? What would Jesus want me to do? Well, maybe rolling my eyes and slamming the door in her face and telling her I hate her isn't the way that Jesus would want me to do that. Because if I were saying, if I were mom, and mom or me, how would I want to be treated? Well, I would want respect and I would want to be heard and I would want some understanding, but I definitely would want to hear them too. So I'm going to start to do my part, my contribution. I can't control others. I'm going to do my contribution. And you start hitting through your roles. Or you just write down the circumstances of your life and you filter them through this scripture. And as you do it, God will give you ideas. He will give you plans even. He'll tell you what to do. It'll come to your mind and you can make a plan and you can bring others into it. And you can say, look, I need to love, you know, my wife wants me to listen more to her. I'm sure she does. I'm not very good at listening sometimes. And so what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to set 20 minutes aside a day because that's how I would want to be treated in that situation 
20 minutes aside and we're just going to talk. 30 minutes and we're just going to talk. It's something. And as you do that, as you bring in that application, Jesus transforms your life. He transforms your life. And as those small things, you do it. And when the big things come, you already have the foundation. And the test, you'll survive it. Ashley and I faced the greatest test we ever had last year. It was unbelievably painful. We lost our daughter at 17 weeks in the womb. We had no idea that this was going to happen. It was a total surprise. You know, for Ash and some of you ladies who've been through the same thing, and you guys can talk to her and, and get more of her perspective when I encourage you to do that. But from what I was seeing, it was like this intense um, identity struggle almost. Because, you know, as a mom, your body's there to protect right? I mean, it was hard, you know, and as a husband and father trying to figure out what to do, and it's, and it hurts, and it's so painful, and we did a lot of processing, and a lot of thinking, and, and a lot of talking, but in those moments, man, we faced a test. Man, we didn't have control. We didn't choose it. We didn't want it. If we could take it back, we would, you know? I mean, I know people say, oh, yeah, if I would go through it all again. Well, I, I don't know if I could say that, I know it happened, and I trust Christ. But man, I, I want my daughter. So when you look at this, right, we had to face this enormous test of our heart and our lives. And I can tell you that Ashley and I are imperfect. We are sinners. We've messed up. We mess up. We will mess up. We have chaos in our lives at times. All these things happen. We are not perfect. We don't have it all together. But I do know this that Ashley and I as a couple are committed, committed to the words of Jesus. That we may obey, but we may disobey, or we may mess up, but we recognize when we do and we ask for forgiveness and we bring to God in repentance and we say, Jesus, help me figure out your words. And we've tried our entire marriage to live out the words of Jesus. And when that storm came, unpredictable, we had no idea it was gonna happen, uncontrollable. When it happened, we were on a rock. And now we have our daughter due September 14th. And we don't know what's going to happen. But we trust Jesus. And we trust his word. And we try to put into practice what he's told us. If you practice what Jesus says, if you practice the words of Jesus you will love him more. If you practice the words of Jesus, you'll be able to face any test and pass. If you practice the words of Jesus, one day you'll meet him face to face and you'll experience his forgiveness and his grace and his love and you'll know that day that everything was worth it. foundation. Practice, it doesn't make us perfect, but it makes us prepared. Thanks for listening. 
To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.